Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show today one of horror's true historians. His archival work has preserved many of the genre's treasures, and his brilliant insight has graced countless commentary tracks of cinema's greatest gems. He's an author, host, and icon. Please welcome David DelVal. Thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure to be on your show. It's my pleasure to have you. I think that it is long overdue for horror fans who know your contributions to the genre to have you here. Well, Michael and I are planning to do an audio commentary together. We've been planning to do one for well over a year now, and hopefully he and I are going to do The Killing of Sister George, and that's a um, Robert Aldrich movie that has been uh, kind of um, neglected, and I think we'll do uh, a beautiful job with it if we can get around to doing it, Mike. Yeah, a, a tale of lesbian rage, I think it would be something that would be of interest to our listeners here. Well, and especially one that has uh, such a dynamite uh, premise, you know, the the BBC firing a rather arch lesbian for her drinking and then reducing her to doing the voice of a cow on a on a children's show. (laughs) So, I mean, we're going to have a ball with that. Oh, well, and I think we're going to have a ball today as well. I know we will. And so with that in mind, why don't we just kick off festivities? I'm going to ask you the same first question I ask every guest, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can approach that question however you want. What's your point of entry? Why do you think horror connects? What's your personal relationship? But why horror? Horror is definitely a childhood trauma. I think every single fan that I've ever talked to has always related the horror film to their childhood, and I'm no exception. Uh, When I was a little boy, uh, I was, you know, transfixed in front of my television set watching the Universal horror packages as they were first released on television for shock theater. Uh, This was before horror hosts. Well, not quite. I'm not old enough to remember Vampira, but I certainly remember Zachary and Goulardi and uh, all these rather camp uh, kind of uh, graveyard versions of Captain Kangaroo. (laughs) <laughs> that would uh, that would introduce horror movies. And the, one of the very first I saw was Dracula. And I don't know about you, but Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi was not just an icon, but he was the most unique personality, I think, in the horror genre. Now, let's not say that I'm not totally a Boris Karloff fan or a Vincent Price fan or later on a Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee fan. But Bela Lugosi had the most unique presence. He had the strangest line readings of any actor that I had ever heard. And Dracula itself, which, of course, I didn't know as a child, he, his English was very bad in the, the early days of, of talkies. And he had been in silent films. And he was not the first choice to play Dracula. So his line readings were, you know, I am... Dracula. And I'm going, who is this guy? And then the next year I saw Murders in the Rue Morgue, and in that he plays Dr. Morocco. And he goes, if you are used to my kind of hocus pocus, then go get your money back. And I'm just transfixed with this man. And uh, so his early 30s movies are brilliant. And by the time we get to The Raven, where he's like, I tear torture out of myself by torturing you. (laughs) You know, I mean, I was totally sold. He was my number one man. I kind of want you to portray Bela Lugosi in an audio series. This is really good material. Well, you know, I did my impression for Lillian Lugosi, which was a very ballsy thing for me to do. And I was privileged to meet uh, Bela Jr. and his mother many, many years ago when I met Ed Wood, too. I'll tell you about that. But uh, Lillian Lugosi uh, was the love of his life, and she was with him through most of his movies. And then she married Brian Donlevy of the Quatermass movies. So this is a very interesting woman. And I went up to her, and she said, well, so you're a big fan of my husband, my late husband. And I said, oh, you know I am. And she said, I hear you do an impression of him. So I thought, what am I going to do for her? I'm not going to do Dracula. So I did Igor from Son of Frankenstein. I go, they would not bury me in the holy place. They said I broke my neck. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, that's pretty damn good. So I got that straight from Mrs. Bela Lugosi. So that, 
You can imagine how that made me feel. And Robert Creamer was doing the authorized Lugosi biography called The Man Behind the Cape. And do you know they wanted to end the book with the making of Dracula? They, she didn't want to talk about the rest of his life, which, you know, had its ups and its downs. downs. Yeah. But thanks to Tim Burton, we know that Ed Wood, you know, Ed Wood was a mess. The one time I met him, he attacked my friend Robert with a knife. He was trying to show us a 16-millimeter print of Plan 9 from Outer Space. I wish I had appreciated this moment more, but I get so <laughs> terrified around people that are out of their minds. that As, as you do. Yeah, yeah, that I just, I couldn't relish the moment. Now I try, for moments like this, when I try and go back in time and explain to people he was a mess he was nothing like johnny depp he was he was mean and he was unhappy and he was alcoholic and uh geez um it wasn't a, it wasn't a pleasant experience but uh uh thank god there's this document of his love for bela lugosi which i do believe was genuine I think it's interesting. I mean, obviously, this is why you were an ideal guest, because in the course of the first question, we charted through Edward and Bella Lugosi. Well, getting back to why as a child, I think that it's because when you're gay and you don't know you're gay, because, of course, when I was five and six and seven years old and one, I had no idea what my sexuality was. But I did identify with the vampire mythology because I was not, as I would go further into grade school and, and junior high, I was not terribly athletic. I was not a jock. I obviously was taking after my mom a bit. And these horror movies were an escape. It was a moment when I could get away from school, get away from the peer pressure of trying to be friends with far more popular people. Now, this didn't last long because I developed a very sharp sense of humor and quickly made all the jocks laugh. And then I made them pay for it. <laughs> and have been doing so ever since. Well, you mentioned that as someone who was discovering their queer identity as, as a young gay kid, even before you really had the words for it, you gravitated towards vampire lore. Yes. What is it about the vampire specifically that you draw that connection to? Well, all right, vampires only come out at night they they don't like to they can't they ha cast no reflection in a mirror they drain bodily fluids from another person you're describing liberace i'm describing liberace and raymond burr all at one time <laughs> and and uh so the 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 tropes are there right and when i started uh, when i was in college i was very privileged to become friends with and as, as a me my mentor was professor leonard wolf and Leonard Wolf wrote The Annotated Dracula, A Dream of Dracula. He, he was the one who started David Skull. And there was a time in, in film history, as far as historians went, I was the only openly gay horror film historian around, and then David Skull. And I was before David, and David and I became friends. And in fact, David came out when he came to West Hollywood. He spent one whole evening in my house trying to tell me he was gay. And by the sunrise, it, which, of course, was very Murnau, very Nosferatu, he was a vampire, I was a vampire, we were vampires, and the sun <laughs> was coming up, so time to go to sleep. Um, but I do believe that the uh, Bram Stoker was latently homosexual because, uh, as David Scholes uh, has researched, uh, Stoker became the manager and the best friend of Sir Henry Irving. If you look at pictures of Sir Henry Irving, he resembles Dracula. And I do believe that Stoker was in love with him. In fact, the legend is that he died in his arms. And so if you look at Dracula, who totally destroys women, uh, there are so many crossover moments where you can go Dracula. And let's go back to the vampire myth itself. John Polidori, the homosexual physician to Lord Byron, wrote the very first vampire novel called The Vampire, mm -hmm. and it was based on Lord Byron. And Lord Byron was notoriously bisexual and charismatic, the world's first poet rock star. So tell me what isn't gay about The Vampire. The very origin of it is steeped in male-male bonding. Then talk to me a little bit about 
how when we first got vampires in literature, they were characters to be feared. But there was a pivot point in pop culture where they became romanticized. There's a romanticism to Dracula, of course. But if you look at Dracula as he's presented in Stoker's novel, as opposed to what Anne Rice put on the table decades, a century later, when did we fall in love with the idea of the vampire? I think that it was movies that did that. I don't believe the literature itself, except for Jay Sheridan La Fanu's Carmilla. Carmilla is a definite uh, lesbian attraction. Right. Um, we didn't have this in Stoker. And that's why when Coppola did his version of Dracula, when Gary Oldman goes, I've crossed oceans and oceans of time. Well, that's fine, but that has nothing to do... You know, let's. Dracula is a series of entries in a journal. Right. There's no connect. Dracula is an, a reanimated corpse that feeds on human beings. He does not have romances. He doesn't, as Christopher Lee does in, in the, the uh, Terrence Fisher Dracula, look at Mina's picture on Jonathan Harker's desk. Oh, what a charming girl. <laughs> I would love to drain her. You know, this is all this is all the conceit of Jimmy Sangster and all the screenwriters that came before him. John L. Balderston, who I believe was gay. Um, It's just interesting to me that uh, when we started examining the universal horror films, we realized that there were a number of gay connections to them, like the werewolf of London. Dr. Glendon has this young man that he takes to Tibet. He ignores his wife to the point that his wife doesn't know what to do. And what's going on here? And uh, so, yes, I do believe it was the movies. And, of course, the very first Dracula, the Murnau Nosferatu, um, he's hardly a romantic figure. So I do believe that it's a, it's a Hollywood thing. I don't believe that you're going to find too much of it in Stoker. Um, Anne Rice deliberately set out to make a homosexual vampire story. It was, she, she, I know because her husband, Stan, was at San Francisco State when I was. As a matter of fact, Leonard Wolf proofread Interview with a Vampire. And while he was doing that, by the way, there was a beautiful blonde boy that got in the papers at the San Francisco Chronicle for coming forward and introducing himself to Leonard with his boyfriend and saying that they drain each other's blood. I am a real gay vampire. And Leonard went crazy with this and started writing articles about it. And then he wrote the book, A Dream of Dracula. And he was very fascinated with the male-male, the male-male attraction in Mm -hmm. vampire lore. And Anne picked up on that. But remember, Anne was going through the grief of losing her daughter. And she made her daughter immortal in the character of Claudia. And, uh, of course, her son Christopher's gay. And so... I think all of this was on her mind. So she's really the first author to truly bring all that to the table, at least as far as I know. Right. But I was around when all that was going on. And what was weird, I was spending so much time with Leonard that it got around San Francisco State. They thought, I, even though I'm not blonde, they thought, is David the vampire of San Francisco? And I went, well, maybe on Polk Street, but I don't, I, I certainly not going to take, I'm not going to get on to Castro or the, or, or the Folsom with that story. The Count of Castro. Count of Castro. Uh, it's interesting because you mentioned how when we track back into the history, there are a lot of threads of gay identity that we can find and discover now that were maybe just not discussed at the time. True. And bringing it back to your own biography, you know, you said early on you you felt this connection to the genre and your own sense of otherness. Yes. But at what point being kind of enchanted by the movies, did you know that this was something you wanted to commit your life to? I don't think I thought in those terms. I think that it, it's sometimes history is thrust upon you. I think that the more I absorbed and I had a, uh, uh, an affinity for it, and so I became the go-to guy in elementary school to talk about monster movies. I was a monster kid. Right. I truly deserve the rondo I won for that, you know. <laughs> I was a monster kid before any of them, and they certainly took their time to acknowledge it. But I can go back to the late 50s as a kid, and I, rem- I remember I tell this story quite a bit. That one of the, uh, not a vampire movie, but I saw Lon Chaney Jr. in The Mummy's Curse, and my mother reminded me of this. In the movie, 
Cheney comes up through a, 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 a well. And as a little kid, I interpreted that as the toilet. So when I got home, I wouldn't go to the bathroom because I thought the mummy was going to come up through the toilet and grab my ass. And so I kind of like, and of course, Lon Chaney Jr., that's the last thing I wanted. And so, uh, you know, uh, I was uh, kind of traumatized with that for a bit. But uh, all of the monster movies were about uh, the loneliness, what Christopher Lee called the loneliness of evil. And I do believe that Dracula, as personified by actors in the movies, was a lonely figure that could never really love or be loved. Uh, the Frank Langella version, of course, is besotted with that. Um, but there are vampire movies that uh, go uh, that go into other aspects of it. Right. Sometimes uh, they kind of border on the zombie movies, the Count Yorga films, except for Count Yorga. If you want to talk about a gay vampire, say no more. Uh, although his minions all look kind of trashy, like Bob Quarry went right for the we went right on Hollywood Boulevard looking for his brides. Well, you know, when you are a vampire on a budget. Yes. Uh, believe me, with AIP, the budgets were, shall we say, severe. Uh, but um, and I'll tell you about Bob Query. He's a fascinating character. Another gay actor who uh, uh, the first time I met him at Numbers on Sunset Boulevard, I was at Richard Deacon's birthday party. This is in one of my books. And I see Robert Query over at the bar and I said, I've got to go over and talk to him. And Richard said, oh, he'll love meeting you. So I went over and I said, excuse me, Mr. Query. And he said, listen, I'll buy you a drink, but I don't want to get into my trick money. <laughs> that was my introduction to Count Yorga. So, uh, but getting back to your question, I think that I started to realize that horror movies were something that made me popular in school. Mm -hmm. So as any good press agent will tell you, when something works, go with it. Right. And so I became that. And I'll tell you a story. When William Castle's 13 Ghosts came out, I took all of my buddies to see it at the local shopping mall. Right. The next day I got called into the principal's office because a number of the parents were angry that I took their kids to see uh, a horror movie, which was again, because remember I was in Catholic school. Right. And so I was having to deal with that, with the, the uh, kind of hypocrisy of the Catholic Church which is steeped in mysticism in the occult. I have to ask, since uh, Jeffrey Schwartz was on the show a few weeks ago, um, and, you know, his adoration of William Castle, 13 Ghosts, what was the gimmick on that one? Do you remember? Uh, that was the one with the uh, uh, something vision, uh, not Emerjo, that was uh, 13 Ghosts. It was, it was the, oh no, it was uh, 13 Ghosts had the glasses, where you could see the ghosts only if you put them on. But the movie wasn't in 3D, but the ghosts were. So the gimmick in that was when we were in the house and the ghosts of Dr. Zarabia, or whatever his name was, <laughs> because he collected ghosts, and they right. were all in the basement. Well, By the way, the remake hobby. of that's not bad either. No, it's I actually love that house with all the occult symbols around it. And I think F. Murray Abraham is in it. Um, so that was the gimmick in that. And it's a harmless movie. Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West in another gay classic, The Wizard of Oz, uh, she was the housekeeper in it. Donald Woods, Rosemary DeCamp, any movie starring Rosemary DeCamp has to be gay. And uh, uh, little um, Charles Herbert, who you may remember from The Fly. He's the little boy that keeps tugging on Vincent Price's lapel saying, but there's a little fly out in the courtyard with a white head. And, of course, the last line, help me, you know, all of that's right. in there. Um, but the movie's perfectly harmless. It was harmless in 1961, and it's even it's like a, it's like a fable today. So you got called into the principal's office. Oh, I did indeed. And they said, you're, you're perverting our children. And I said, well, give me a few years. I'll really, <laughs> I'll, I'll show you some real perversion. <laughs> now, did you get in any trouble with your parents for that or no? Well, my mother was... An enabler. My mother, if it hadn't been for my mother, I would never have gotten to see horror movies in the theater because remember, you had to be accompanied by an adult. My mother took me, the very first horror movie I ever saw, I was a baby. And I was taken in 1953, I was three years old, and I was taken to see House of Wax. Mm. I remember very little of it, except when you walked into the theater, the movie was all blurred in like colors and flat. And then you put the glasses on and it was amazing. 
but I couldn't sit through these things. When in, in later on, Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I begged and begged to go see it. The minute it started, I had to leave because I cried. I was so little, uh, but I got over that. Right. But uh, my mother took me to see the horror of Dracula downtown Los Angeles when it was new. 1958. 1958. And I remember I'd never seen a color vampire movie. And when Christopher Lee lurches out of that library with his face all bloodied, I went under the seat. I told Christopher that when I met him years later. He said, of course you did. <laughs> I traumatized a generation, you know. Very modest, Christopher Lee, may I say. I loved Christopher, but I have to tell you, when you were alone with him, he was fabulous. When you got in a room with four or five people, he was insufferable. And I don't know what it was in his character that made him become like that. Because I always defend him because I spent a lot of time with Christopher Lee when he lived here. And I really enjoyed his... I took him to Studio One, oh. the gay disco. And I remember the night we were going, he said, uh, well, uh, this is what, for pooftas? I said, yes, <laughs> it's a poofta disco. And he said, well, I think I'll leave Gita at home. <laughs> and I said, you do that. Oh, my. Well, I want to get back into that in a second. But I have to ask, from rabble-rousing and taking kids to go see 13 Ghosts and getting hauled to the principal's office for it, uh, yeah, that kind of foretells your life ahead. Of, it sure does. <laughs> of, um, of introducing and, uh, get, you know, bridging the world of horror to, to people. When did you go from the kid who was hauling other kids to the movies to someone who started making this a job bob wilkins bob wilkins bless his heart um was my savior when i was a junior in high school in sacramento and in Cena high school at 1400 bell avenue right across from arden fair off watt avenue uh bob wilkins had a show called the bob wilkins show creature features and he had guests and uh, i was a junior and i wrote him a letter and I said, I've just become a member of the Count Dracula Society because my mom and I had gone down to L.A. and I had run into this ghastly little man named Dr. Donald A. Reed who talked like this and, and would say like, I have seen Evan Costello meet Frankenstein over a hundred times, over a hundred times. He was relentless like a Chinese water torture. But I endured his insufferability because he was the head of the Count Dracula Society and he made me a member. And when he made me a member, I endeared myself to him by going back up to Sacramento and my Count Dracula connection got me on the Bob Wilkins show. Well, the very first show I did, I was a big hit. And the next day at school, guess what? I was very popular. <laughs> David was on television. So Bob made me a semi-regular. And from that, there was, no, there was no going back because now I was on television. Right. I was on television and I was 17 years old. And uh, then he moved, to, to speed it up, I graduated from high school. I'm going to American River College for a semester. Then I transfer over to San Francisco State. Bob took his show to Oakland, to Jack London Square, and while I was in college, I was his guest. So I was popular in college again as a horror connection. And then, of course, by then, I was in my 20s, mm -hmm. and movies were, uh, you know, I was walking into these triple features of Hammer on Market Street, and all my, my friends from state were there, and I was doing uh, Leonard Wolf's Dracula course, and James Dickey was teaching there, the man who wrote Deliverance, and... Uh, very cute guy named Peter Weller, Peter Weltner. God, I remember his name still. That was a crush I had. What a, he was a, anyway, I'm not going to get into Peter Weltner. But uh, anyway, he was a professor there with rather Nordic looks. And he was very fond of vampire lore as well. So it's all connected. It's all connected. And from your teenage years, you became very interested in just kind of preserving the memory and I discussing started these collecting films. movie memorabilia. And to, to backtrack a little, because we did travel, uh, prior to all this, I lived in Kansas City, Missouri when I was like in fifth grade for a year. Kansas City, Missouri was a, a high point for me because National Screen Service 
which was the organization that made the movie posters, the lobby cards, and the stills. They were the ones that distributed to the theaters up until the studios took charge of it. Right. So one of the main warehouses was in Kansas City, run by a wonderful guy named George Crandall. George took a liking to me, and on weekends, he would let me come in and help him. And for helping him, I could take anything I wanted. So the DelVal archives started in Kansas City, Missouri, in the summer of 1964, when I got a six sheet on The Creature from the Black Lagoon, all the Rillart reissue universals. I had three sheets on House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, lobby cards. I had standees from every, I had a million dollars in posters. Now, the tragedy of that, by the time, 64, by the time I walked into that warehouse, they were systematically burning all the old years. All the 30s were gone. The only reason I got what I did was it was reissued into the 50s. Right. When I got there, they were burning 1947. So my collection started with that. That's why I have the collection I do. I don't have a lot. Don't get excited out there. I don't have all the posters I used to. But I do still have most of the stills. Now, because they were burning things, did that sort of kickstart your idea that you needed to preserve yes, stuff? Yes, absolutely. But I was put off at every turn except for my beloved mother because everyone, oh, that's junk. It's crap. It's garbage. Everything I would, uh, you know, and I had a classical education. I read other things, you know, but uh, I admired the, the, the horror genre because I was, I was very, I was very loyal to it. Mm -hmm. And it, it was something that I always depended on growing up. Right. But I have to emphasize, emphasize that it is a juvenile thing. And I think when one looks at the current crop of horror movies, it is the lack of logic and the impassioned uh, following that what I call the horror 101 crowd that can't go back past 1980. So let's examine what they have from 80 to 2018. It's a very specific kind of movie. Right. And it's not anything like the old Universal Hammer Euro trash things. It's basically Jason Freddy. Uh, slasher, uh, women in peril, uh, frat house pranks, uh, coming of age in that manner. Where, uh, and I, I was concerned for my gay brethren at that time because it, there was a jock mentality that was permeating through all this. And how many bad horror movies will take a moment to call some poor kid a faggot or a queer or, you know, that's what we had to put up with. But, but I would, that's changing. I would argue in some of the movies that you referenced, Friday the 13th, for example, yes, there's a jock mentality. But if you look at the thread of those movies, it's usually the jocks that are punished. And uh, usually the lead is a tomboy, outsider girl. There's always a, an otherness. It doesn't manifest quite in the way I think that it would have in the 60s or 70s. Right. But... Um, there is a comeuppance to those movies, I think, for kids of the 80s, where if you were being picked on by the cheerleader and the quarterback from the football team, and all you had was the catharsis of waiting for Jason to, like, stab them by the lake, there's a joy to that, too. But I think that when you're talking about engaged new ideas, there was a moment where they just kind of kept going, as Roger Ebert called them, dead teenager movies. And that was sort of like a mill for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember when Leonard Malton called The Bride of Frankenstein a pretty good movie for this kind of trash. Now, Leonard's a friend of mine, and I he has long since abandoned that view. But I always kid him about it because it's right. in print. If you go way, way back when he was putting three and four stars on movies. Right. Before the Madvids and all that. Uh, but no, I know what you're talking about. I will tell you this. Uh, I keep hearing, I sat with Mark Patton, Peyton Patton for, Patton, yep. for uh, Monster Palooza and we became friends. And uh, he even admits that Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, no one, and Clue Gulliger confirms this, that no one really thought it was a gay movie when they were making it. But it was certainly, he was gay and his character certainly seems to be gay and his best friend is kind of hot and he's always going over there and he's always shirtless. So there's something unconscious about all this. But Robert England, I will tell you, I was with Robert when he made the first one. Right. He was a friend of Martine Beswick, who was a dear friend of mine. And when he made the first one, we were over at, I'll never forget this, we were over at Martine's and Robert was standing out on her veranda 
and I walked out there with a drink and we were talking and he said, you know, I've just made this movie, David. I'm completely covered in makeup. I have no dialogue. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm about ready to pack it in. <laughs> well, look what happened. Right. But by part four, I was at a press conference. You see, Martine was dating a really hot guy named Dimitri who was putting together Robert's Laguna Beach house. He was his carpenter. So this is all connected. It's right. always about hot guys anyway. <laughs> and so uh, uh, he really didn't think anything of the first one. But then it turned into this, this series. But by part four, I made the comment to him at a press conference. I said, you are aware that you're a child molester. You're a man, an evil man that takes little girls into a boiler room and molests them and then throws them in the fire. What is particularly funny about that? And what exactly has turned you into the Henny Youngman of Hara? <laughs> and he said, I can't answer that because we've long ago abandoned what I did in the first film. It's, because they couldn't pursue it and do that. Right. You couldn't have Freddie come out and say, welcome to prime time, bitch, to Zsa Zsa Gabor and to Dick Cavett if he had been like Peter Lorre was an M, right. which is really the predecessor for all of that. So it's an interesting concept isn't it what that started out and what it finally because now we're totally enraptured in franchise right movies that don't deserve a franchise get them movies that should have ended with one are now in 12 i mean how many leprechauns are there how many children of the corn how many and how many is enough i don't know i guess as long as they make money it doesn't matter well that's the true answer from a studio standpoint absolutely so back to your trajectory in this world, uh, Bob Wilkins gave you f your first taste of fame amongst oh, monsters, but when did you step away from Wilkins and what was the moment that you struck out on your own? The San Francisco Chronicle gave me one whole page in their pink section as this amazing devotee of horror. Mm -hmm. And I just milked that to death. <laughs> and uh, I knew that I had to come to Los Angeles. That was the beginning. Right. Bob wanted me to take the show over. Had I done that instead of John Stanley, I would have been in San Francisco doing what John... And I don't know that it did all that well for John. I think, I, I think my destiny was to come down here. I would never have become friends with Vincent Price. I would never have met all the incredible people I met right. if I hadn't come to Los Angeles. I wouldn't have gotten into films. I wouldn't have worked in the industry as... A, I wouldn't have been an agent. I wouldn't have gone to William Morris. I wouldn't have... I just I can just make a laundry list of the things that wouldn't have happened to me had I stayed up there and just been a horror host. But I'm actually thinking about being a horror host again because I went to Cassandra Peterson's last show at Not Scary Farm, and I had just done this uh, asylum horror thing in Riverside where I was in this makeup in a churchyard with a lantern, and they were uh, screening the last moment in the witch mm -hmm. which i highly recommend i think the witch is one of the great classic horror movies of the last 10 years and i'm very very enamored of it and we use that scene at the very end of it and i show i have a little clip of it and i, sh and I showed it to cassandra and she said why aren't you we don't have a horror host now right i'm retired but it's a different world it is a different world but we now have more platforms than ever before of which to reach audiences. There's no one that would be better at it than me, I don't think, because I have the background for it. It's one thing to hire an actor to to sustain an enthusiasm, but right. my God, I have a lifelong one, so why not tap into that? And you have an understanding of classic horror that new audiences need to connect to. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I do trivia over at Blast from the Past every month, and uh, it's so funny. The whole room goes dead silent when anything old comes up. <laughs> the whole room just turns over and looks at me. And because they rarely get into classic horror there. Right. You know? And I am absolutely at, at sea when it comes to the minutia of, like, how would I know what song is playing in Christine when it parks it? You know, please. I don't want my head filled with that kind of inertia, you know, if I can help it. But Well, you mentioned moving to uh, L.A., and how you met Vincent Price. And you yes. famously did a taped interview with him. That Was that the beginning of your friendship? Oh, no, no, no. I met Vincent Price in 1967 when he had just come back from England doing Witchfinder General. 
he came up to Sacramento. And remember, I'm doing the Bob Wilkins show. Right. So he comes up to Sacramento with a show called Dear Theo, reading the letters of Vincent van Gogh and his brother Theo. And he was playing at the Municipal Auditorium, where we all graduated a year later, <laughs> downtown Sacramento. I went down, here's a famous story. I went down there, I was, and he was my favorite. I've loved him since House of Wax. So I go backstage, and he's standing with his back to me, tall and everything. And I am completely starstruck. The only time I ever was, by the way. And I walked over, and I said, Mr. Price. And he turned around and says, yes. And I said, oh, here's my famous mark. I'm David DelVal from the Tomahawk at Encina High School. And he looks at me and he goes, the Tomahawk? Well, let's get over here and get this interview on the road. <laughs> and I was just in love with him, totally. And we exchanged personal information. I mean, what was going on here? He stayed in touch with me from that day until his death. That's how long we knew each other. And I, I remember everything he said to me. He said, I've just come back from England, and I don't know. This movie's a little more violent than what I'm accustomed to, but the director, Michael Reeves, is very special. And I look forward to working with him again, and then we're about to do the Loblong Box. Um, so I was aware of Witchfinder General. Uh, I, we talked about, so I can't remember everything, but from that moment on, I stayed in touch with him. And when I'd come to Los Angeles, I, if he was around, he was, always took time. I don't know what it was. We just connected. Right. Same thing with Christopher Lee on a different level. Um, Christopher admired the fact that I admired him. <laughs> that was the beginning of it, you know. Do you have a favorite Vincent Price movie? Yes. I loved uh, Theater of Blood because of Butch. When he plays this hairdresser, you know, dishy, dishy hair, can't wait to get my hands on it. I just died. And when I had him on the show, I wanted so much. And I was very cool about it, though. And uh, I said, listen, that's a... Because he didn't play an effeminate homosexual. He played a ballsy, uh, you know, tough, kind of a tough gay guy. Right. And, um, yeah. I, of course, prior to that, before he made Theater of Blood, because I knew him way before that, Tomb of Lygia was his favorite movie. And I understand why, because all of the, from Usher through up until A Mask of the Red Death, Lygia was the first movie that was shot out in a real location. We weren't in a claustrophobic. Sometimes it's better if you're interpreting Poe the way Roger Corman always likes to say it. I come from a Freud, I can do Roger now, from a Freudian background, blah, blah, blah. So I, I, the, the house was kind of an internalization of Roderick Usher's mind and all of that. Uh, I, I think I said on one of my commentaries that I like The Haunted Palace. And in terms of his acting, I think The Haunted Palace is an amazing movie because here is an actor who has always been underestimated. He a, was a brilliant stage actor, brilliant film actor. And in the, uh, in the Haunted Palace, which was really a veiled adaptation of Howard Phillips Lovecraft's The Strange Case of Charles Dexter Ward... He effortlessly goes from being Joseph Kerwin, the warlock, to playing Charles Dexter Ward, the kind of milk toast husband. And what is most dramatic in that for us as gay men is the scene where he comes, he's possessed now by Joseph Kerwin, who is a womanizing warlock, not the kind of gay husband she started with, obviously, in the movie. He right. comes into Deborah Pageant's bedroom. And she knows there's something wrong because he leans over and leers at her and says, what's the matter, my dear? I've just come to exercise my husbandly prerogative. <laughs> and I, don't, I think we kind of know what he's going to exercise there. And she is horrified. Charles Beaumont must have known something, uh, Ray Russell, whoever, the collaboration for that screenplay, because why was Deborah Pageant married to a man who would never touch her? And then all of a sudden he becomes possessed and wants to have sex with her and she's completely out, not going not gonna to have it. Right. Very interesting. These are little subtle things that kind of run through all of these movies, beginning with Roderick Usher, where, you know, he's uh, living kind of bleached like a newt in this, this uh, mansion with his sister. And 
his sister looks more like Mark Damon, and Mark Damon and, and uh, Maya Ferry, look, they look alike, which is kind of strange because they're supposed to be lovers. Right. And Vincent told me once, he said, well, you know how it is in movies. He said, I did a version of a House of the Seven Gables where my my sister becomes my girlfriend. He said, it's like what they were going to do at MGM where they wanted in Romeo and Juliet. They wanted... Leslie Howard and Norma Scherer to walk into the clouds together after their after their suicides. Which they, you know, is kind of the ending of Greece in a way. In a way. I mean, but, Sandy and Danny don't kill themselves, but well, Shakespeare didn't do Greece, unfortunately. But but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So in this time, you befriend Vincent Price. You befriend Christopher Lee. I know that, like, over the course of your career, you have managed to befriend and, and I've met many of the people I've admired. Yes. And, uh, and Barbara Steele became the closest because I uh, was her manager agent for a while. And in fact, Silent Scream was a movie I mm-hmm. got her. And then we did an audio commentary on it. Although you'd never know I was on that audio commentary for the way it's packaged. But nonetheless, <laughs> I'm there. Well, and that's what I was about to ask you about, because obviously there's so much about your career. We could sit for for hours and talk about all the different things you've done. But we talked a little bit at the, the front of the show about the commentary work you do. And it because of your relationships with a lot of these people and the work that you've done, you were highly sought out to do commentaries on re-releases of films. And uh, it's because of these personal interactions and these insights as an archivist and historian that you can bring yes. to them. When did you first start getting involved in commentaries? Do you remember how that began? Oh, yes. Uh, and I, I will send a big, big smooch and, and uh, flag up to William Lustig. William Lustig is uh, a wonderful man. He's a fun director. If you've ever seen Maniac Cop 1 and 2, you know what I'm talking about. Mr. Lustig approached me one sunny afternoon and said, why don't you do the commentary on Harry Kumel's Daughters of Darkness? Mm, for the Blue with, Underground release. Yes, yep. with John Carlin from Dark Shadows. He played Willie uh, <laughs> opposite Jonathan Fred. Another actor, I, I, Jonathan and I went to the bars in the village together. I can tell you about that sometime. It was a hoot. I love <laughs> kicky people, Jonathan used to say. Uh-huh. And uh, let me tell you, John was a hoot. I had never met him before. And uh, Bill, uh, I remember we were driving to the location and he said, well, I hope John's not in the bag today. I said, it's 1030 in the morning. What are you talking about? He said, you'll see. So we get over there and John is wonderful. And we're watching this movie. And I'm, you know, I'd never done one of these before. And we're all mic'd up and everything. And I'm being so reverential and everything. And the first thing we watch is John have sex with this girl on the Trans Europa Express. And John says, shh, be quiet a minute. I want to enjoy this moment. Oh, what a beautiful gal she was. This was my introduction to audio commentary. So when it was over, we took John to uh, Tale of the Cock in the Valley for lunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, his lunch was, you know, a lot of, uh, of uh, cognac. And so we kind of had to carry him out at the end. And it was kind of sad. But, um, yeah. He was he was terrific, and a few a couple of years later, I got to meet Harry Kumel. There's another story, and Harry was at the Egyptians showing all his movies. So I brought John down there, and John said, "I never liked him. He has a handshake like a fish." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, surely you can overlook that just to say hello." And so I put them together, and they were they were they were they were affable with each other. Right. But I knew that, and apparently, when they were making Daughters of Darkness, uh, John had an altercation with Harry over, over the blonde actress. Um, not Delphine Sarig, who was wonderful. But John had some. He's a great guy. He's still with us, but he's not well. And um, I wish him all the best. He's a terrific guy. And of course, Dark Shadows. I was very friends. I was very good friends with Dan Curtis. And uh, I got to know Laura Parker. I, the whole Dark Shadows family. Uh, we were all friends. And especially the wonderful Jonathan Fred, who was just a remarkably funny, dear man. And, oh, my God, Louis Edmonds, Big Lou. <laughs> I walked into the men's room at some convention and there was Big Lou. And I knew the minute I saw him, I thought, oh, my God. And he's just he was hysterical, hysterical guy. So from Daughters of Darkness, your yes. first ever commentary yes. track, you have done so many. Sense. I've done 65. <laughs> 65 commentary tracks. 
What was the most challenging movie to do a commentary on? <laughs> Satan's Cheerleaders. <laughs> <laughs> because there's really nothing to say. You know, I hate to say this business-wise, but perhaps there are some movies that don't need a commentary. <laughs> I shouldn't say that at all. They all need commentaries. Pay no attention to the man and behind the curtain. And you recently got to do a commentary track on a very prestigious re-release of Dario Argento's Suspiria, the 4K transfer. You did... I did a Phenomena, too. Oh, you did Phenomena as well. I did the Steelbook for that as well, both with Derek Botello, who wrote the uh, Argento Syndrome. And Derek's an old friend of mine and uh, an Argento expert. And uh, I was living up in the Bay Area taking care of my mother uh, in the early part of this decade, in like 2006. And uh, I met Derek and he wanted to interview me about Argento. And I felt like I wasn't really the one to talk to. But it, it, what happened was it's all destiny, Michael, right. because I was meant to talk to Derek because talking to Derek, we wound up living together. We wound, I've helped him finish his book. I wrote the foreword for the Argento syndrome. And we've done a number of commentaries together. I put him, I put him on his first commentaries. I put him on Hounded Palace, Last Man on Earth, and then two Italian movies for Twilight Time, uh, Gran Benito and La Bambino di Satana, an unwatchable Italian giallo, by the way. And then he returned the compliment by putting me on Phenomena and Suspiria. Now, I act as a moderator in these because right. he is the expert. But you need someone in that booth with you. Now, I've done commentaries by myself. I did Madhouse with Vincent. I did Father Goose with Cary Grant. Um, I can do them, right. and apparently the reviews say I do them well, but I prefer to interact with another person if right. I can. But with Suspiria, I can't tell you what this print is like. It's almost 3D. It's, it's insane, and the extras are insane. But remember this, Michael. We are in a transitionatory period where DVDs, books, magazines is all being phased out. The day is rapidly approaching when there will not be physical media as we have it today. The, there will be commentary and stuff, but you'll download it. As long as people want to physically... I'm one of those, and I'm sure you are as well. We want to physically hold that book. Absolutely. I want to look at a magazine. I want to have that in my hands, which is why I think vinyl has come back as strong as mm -hmm. it has. But in order to sell a DVD in today's market, it's what they call a boutique market. You have to have plenty of bells and whistles. Right. That's why movies like Satan's Cheerleaders and all this are getting the, the works, because no one's going to buy them otherwise. So that makes you one of the finest bells and whistles in the horror game. I've always it... wanted to be a bell and a whistle, and now my wish is granted. So there you go. <laughs> but because of that, you get to do what your life's work sort of has always been about, and that's contributing to horror history and preserving horror history. Because... I'm very much... I'm very much uh, appreciative of that. And I see, this is the thing the few times one gets, Oh, occasionally, you know, let me tell you something when you're working in the horror genre as it is today, especially like, uh, some of the online sites, like the classic horror movie board that gave me my Rondo, they gave me a Rondo, but there's a whole group of people on there that aren't very fond of me. And it's based, I I'm sorry to say on jealousy because they simply, why is he doing it? Well, why am I doing it? I've spent a lifetime doing it. What have you done? See, that's my response. Right. But it's funny. At first, they're very glad you're there. And then you wear out your welcome. And they're like, find fault with you, you know, or like someone said, well, David drops names. No, 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 no. I knew these people. I'm not like someone like Tom Weaver that just hates everything. And, you know, he's not one of my favorite people, by the way. And so he will get on there and it's all negative. Or it's all reverential if it's, you know, some serial or something. But if I mention someone like we're talking about people, it's because I knew them. Right. I had lunch with them. We were friends. It wasn't someone I did a 10-minute interview with and took a picture with and that's it. Because remember, the Facebook culture redefines what we call friends, redefines who we are. Um, I would love to be the image that I promote on Facebook. You know, but we're not that we're, we're somewhat like that, but we're, we're far, you know, it's, we're people. Right. And I've been trying for the last couple of years to pare down my 5,000 followers to people that are in California somewhat. And that I've actually met, you know, because I have a lot of people, I couldn't possibly know that many people, but <laughs> we all have want to, 
Well, no, but I mean, well, there's some Turkish bodybuilders I wouldn't mind knowing, but then that's why I keep the Istanbul connection open. Hello, Istanbul. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I love people. I mean, I don't mind, but I just, I don't like it when people get mean spirited right. because sometimes if I don't like something, I'll just talk about something else because it's like why I quit writing a lot of reviews for movies. If I don't like a movie, I'll just leave it alone because I have learned as you have, Michael, that no matter how bad a movie is, it took someone's heart, guts, and soul to put it up there on the screen. And if they got it up on the screen, good for them. I don't particularly have to like it for them to have their due. Absolutely. But we live in a place where there's an awful lot of hate that comes out online. And particularly in the troubled times we're in now, I just you know, beseech everyone that's listening to this podcast to try and start the new year out being a bit more kind to each other and, and kind of lift people up. One from a world of, of hate culture, what has really, I think, kept you afloat and, and really kept what you do so important is you celebrate what you love. And I think that, you know, through your work, whether it just be stories or the physical things that you preserve, you're saving these things and you share these things because you love these things. And that translates and it also helps introduce it to a new generation that may love it too. And from that, because we started talking earlier about how you began your archive by rescuing things that were otherwise going to get burned. And, you know, with these commentaries, you preserve tales and you preserve stories of people you knew. Uh I know that your archive is kind of in a state of uh, a new journey right now. Tell me well, where, what's going on with your archive. My archive is completely uh, transformed by something called Photoshop. Photoshop has changed my life because now the DelVal archives has literally hundreds of thousands of images because it's not just my collection. I can absorb other people's collections. I can now make available through the archive images from practically any movie, not just horror films. Um, and I'm selling off a portion of it in the next couple of months at the Vogue Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, opposite the Egyptian, next door to Musso and Frank's, the old Vogue Theater, completely renovated by an organization called ScreenBid. I am one of the voices of ScreenBit. I will be doing podcasts there. I will hopefully get Nicholas Reffin, Roger Corman, Kenneth Anger, a lot of my friends to come down and do podcasts with me, introduce movies. We want to have an, a walk-in museum, and I'm on the ground floor of this. Right. And I will be selling off a portion of my archive because it's all been, you know, kind of digitally preserved. Right. But that doesn't matter. If you're a collector, digitally preserved is not in your vocabulary. You want the original old, you know, 1990, 1929, you know, front of house photo that's been, you know, saved through the oceans and oceans of right. time. So, and plus, since mine was a research collection, I'm making available all the images that I collected that mm -hmm. I now have preserved in other ways. So now I can sell off the physical. Right. aspect of it. And I'm at an age now where that's what you do. Listen, when you get to be a certain age, because I'm in my 60s now, and I think it's very important to do three things, to live well, to stay healthy and do the things you love. Stop regretting the things you can't change. Stop being afraid of the future. Don't worry and don't give your money away to your relatives because you're the one that's earned it. <laughs> you know, let them go out and do the same thing. And uh, uh, just look for every day. And, and also don't, and I hope I haven't done this today. Um, yes, I have a fondness for movies from the past. Yes, I prefer some of them to the things that are going on now. But as you know, I go and see every new movie. I try and stay current. I never try and be that old guy that's like, oh, it was all better in my, no, it wasn't always better in my day. Uh, sex was better because we didn't have AIDS. But aside from that, I'm perfectly fine in the present. Well, let me ask this, because it's a question I ask every guest, and you gave me a perfect transition into it. What have you seen recently as a lover of movies that really just lit a fire under you? Anything with Zac Efron. 
<laughs> Someone asked me, some very prestigious critic said, what's the best movie of 2017? And I said, Baywatch. <laughs> because he looks amazing that. But no, I just saw The Great Showman. And I think even though if they had made it about anyone but P.T. Barnum, it would have been fun. Right. But because P.T. Barnum was kind of a troll, yeah. and I'm not fond of circuses, but I went to see it for Zach, and I wasn't disappointed. But as I told you earlier, I think The the Witch is a great film. Right. I liked Get Out. I liked It Follows. I liked, uh, I very much liked Phantom Thread. Uh, I think Phantom, Phantom Th- Thread was a really great gothic Phantom film. Phantom Thread is probably the most beautifully crafted movie I've seen in the last 10 years. It's beautifully put together by a master, master filmmaker. And I, listen, I like them. I, I love Deadpool. I, I, I was one of the few, I love Henry Clavel. I'm the one person that I, cause I take a lot of my, my boys to see, uh, uh, the, the superhero movies. Superhero yeah. movies. And I saw, I'll see him a couple of times. And it was so funny. There was a woman behind me that was just in, in justice league, you know, the, the resurrection of Superman is really the best scene in it right? where he comes wafting down shirtless and, when Lois Lane arrives, I, I hope that bitch doesn't put a shirt on that guy. You know, because then this movie is over. <laughs> oh, my. So outside of your recent appearance on the 4K restoration of Suspiria and your archive that uh, you're going to be selling off a little bit of at, at ScreenBid, at screen what else do you have coming up? Where- well, I've done the audio commentary for Twilight People. <laughs> With okay. Pam Greer for VCI. I've done The Magnificent Doll with Sloane DeForest for uh, Arrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and what else have I... I've, uh, Ruby just came out with uh, Curtis Harrington's Ruby with Piper Laurie. Um, I know I'm leaving something out. Plus, I'm the photo editor on a new book from Turner Classic Movies, The Essentials, called Science Fiction Movies You Need to See. I can't quite remember the title. Uh, written by my friend Sloane DeForest, and I'm the photo editor, and I do have some input into the older movies. I wish that I could have chosen the films because there's not one John Carpenter movie in this book. Interesting. How the hell can you do a book on science fiction and leave him out? Anyway, it's not my call. I'm just the (laughs) photo editor. But believe me, if TCM does a horror film book, it's going to be a different kettle of fish. Is there a Quatermass movie in there? I'm not sure. I'll have to check with Sloan. Because for me, that's that's some some basic science fiction. Oh my! Box you yet. know what? I, you just reminded me of a, of a childhood memory. The first time I saw Enemy from Space, which is Quatermass Two, with with Brian Donlevy, who was probably by then married to uh, uh, Lillian Lagosi, bringing us full circle to the beginning of the conversation. The conversation. There's the line. I'll never forget it. First of all, there's a a, a plant. That's been taken over by this alien for Nigel Neal at his best. And Brian Donlevy has the greatest line. He goes, they've stuffed the pipes with human pulp. <laughs> and I have never forgotten. That was what, 19, 1912. I've never forgotten the human pulp. I, that gave me nightmares. Because, you know, I think Nigel Neal, you know, last night we were both watching movies at home. You and yes. Me, and I watched A Warning to the Curious. Hmm. The M.R. James thing. I watched uh, Peter Vaughn. The BBC has put out a series of ghost stories based on classic uh, ghost stories of M.R. James and J. Sheridan Lafranu. And with a minimum of special effects, just like in the Quatermass movies, you can accomplish so much. And if I were to say anything to young filmmakers today, it is there is so much public domain gothic and science fiction literature that is at your disposal, reach in for it. Right. Don't keep remaking the same old thing. We don't need another version of Dracula. We don't need another version of Jekyll and Hyde. I watched Universal run their their Dark Universe series into the ground with that silly remake of The Mummy, and there were things in it that were great. The woman who plays The Mummy in that is a phenomenal actress. She was a dancer for Madonna. She's incredible. Make that movie about her. Right. But unfortunately, we have Tom Cruise, who's getting older and getting more desperate. And poor baby, he just couldn't let go. And as a result, it's just all Tom. However, the movie ends, I can spoil this because no one's going to see it. The movie ends with him turning into an Egyptian queen. So I think we all got our wish. 
I mean, where do I go from there, honestly? <laughs> well, David, the thing is, is I think that you and I could talk for hours. Well, we have. And we have. <laughs> but our time here is running down. So for my last question, since we already talked where people can find you next, mm-hmm. uh, for all of your years uh, in the genre and working in, in the world of film, uh, I know that you've collected some wisdom. Do you have one bit of advice you'd like to leave fans of horror before you go off into the night? Ah, well, my advice to anyone that likes horror movies is to always leave the door open for possibilities. Because as Vincent Price says, someone who limits their choices limits their life. Excellent. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Michael. Listeners, please make sure to check out David Val on his most recent commentary track, whatever it may be. <laughs> Read one of his books. Uh, we cannot thank him enough. Historian, archivist, author, Zac Efron superfan. <laughs> thank you, David. Thank you, Michael. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels. Produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Segetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Segetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone. Edited by Drew Phillips.